Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Russ. I'm one of the, I am an elder here at Ephesus Church. I'll be filling in today as we just heard Pastor Nick is still in Nigeria. And we'll be preaching on this morning Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. The title of the sermon is He Has Spoken by His Son. The key words for the worshipers in training are prophet, son, and angels. So as someone who only preaches once or twice a year, sometimes it can be challenging to determine what exactly to preach on. We don't have the benefit of knowing what we're going to preach on. As we normally, it's our normal practice to go through books of the Bible like Pastor Nick does. So I found myself trying to determine that over the last few weeks, and God providentially brought me to this passage of Scripture. But one thing that I and Pastor Nick, and we want to be known as a church that is all about Jesus. We want to be known as a church that preaches Jesus, that loves Jesus, that serves Jesus. We want to be known as a church that talks about Jesus. And so with that being said, I was brought to a book of the chapter, a, cha- a book of the Bible that is very much focused on Jesus. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Now, before we start, I want to give a little bit of introduction, a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. There's two or three main themes throughout the book I'd like you to be aware of. The first is that Christ provides intimate access to God and is the only way to gain this access. We actually sang that this morning, that there's none other lamb, none other hope than Jesus The book of Hebrews focuses on the superiority and the sufficiency of Christ, that there's no other sacrifice for sin, no other way to escape the judgment from God. And then later on in the book, it focuses on the fact that Jesus is the focus of Christians' persevering trust in God. So to persevere in our faith, our focus must be Jesus. And finally, Jesus is the fulfillment of the old preparatory era of the Old Testament and is supreme over all things. Now let's talk about the author for a minute, for a few moments. We know that the author had a Greek and Hebrew background. So this Greek idea ever since Plato was that the world that we live in, everything that we see and encounter on a daily basis is only a shadowy an imperfect copy of some other perfect world, a world of perfect forms and perfect ideas and perfect patterns. And we live in a shadow of that perfect world. So for the Greek way of thinking, the task in life was to get away from the shadows and to reach this reality. Now to the Greeks, the writer of Hebrews said, all your lives you have been trying to get away from the shadows You've been trying to get to the truth of reality. That is just what Jesus Christ can enable us to do. But to the Hebrew, it was always dangerous to come too close to God. We see in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, Man, God said to Moses, shall not see me and live. So God gave the Jews access 
but only through the law, which they could not keep. So they had to have continual sacrifices by the priesthood. And to these Jews, the writer of Hebrews says, you are looking for that perfect sacrifice that will open the way to God, which your sins have closed. You will find it in Jesus Christ. So some possible authors of the book of Hebrews that have been presented are Paul, Luke, Barnabas, Apollos, and others. So I personally believe that there are strong indications that the book of Hebrews was not written by Paul. For one, it's anonymous, which Paul usually writes his name as the author. I think in all but one of his letters he did that. The structure is generally unlike the other letters by Paul. Style is significantly different, although there are some, some similarities. On the whole, it's, it's a different style than we see in Paul's normal, letter, normal letters. And the big thing I see is that Paul received the gospel through revelation directly from Christ. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So it's most likely, in my opinion, a companion of Paul, but ultimately, as the early church father Origen is recorded as saying, but who it was that really wrote the epistle, God only knows. But what I know is what the children's catechism says, and we know that it was a holy man who was taught by the Holy Spirit. And also, whom was the letter written? This is very important, too. So we, we know it was Jewish, Jewish Christians And the author quotes the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, throughout the letter. So this points to Greek being their first language. Now, these were more than likely faithful and loving Christians, but for whatever reason, they had become sluggish, and they were kind of drifting like a ship. You know, churches don't normally turn on a dime. They're like ships. They turn very slowly. They slowly drift away from things. So with that in mind, it was possibly written during a time of relative peace with no persecutions of Christians, which may explain their sluggishness. We've seen that history shows that churches normally flourish during persecution and become lazy and sluggish during times of prosperity and acceptance by the outside culture. It's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. So this makes this book particularly helpful for us as we are currently live in a time of general prosperity and acceptance. So regardless of when it was written, we get the impression that this was a critical stage in the spiritual history of the intended recipients of this letter. And lastly, by way of introduction, when was it written? Well, most but not all think pre-70 A.D. because the author talks about sacrifices still going on. So most take this to mean the sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem. And these stopped after the temple was destroyed for the last time in 70 A.D. Not all agree on this either, but it's generally accepted to be written before 70 A.D. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So our writer, whoever he may be, hits the ground running on the very first verse. He takes off like a shot. There's no opening pleasantries, no greetings. He just gets going. So because of that, we can maybe conclude that this letter was meant, even though it was meant for a specific congregation, with a lack of greeting or any other identifier of a specific audience, we can be confident that this letter was intended, perhaps more than any other, really, for the church universal in all places and in all ages. So I want to point out three characteristics of Hebrews that are emphasized in these first four verses. One, this is very important, the first verse has an emphasis on God's self-disclosure as the very foundation of the letter. He starts off the very first verse with letting us know that the basis of our understanding of anything is God's revealing work in his word. So everything that he's going to say is based on God's self-disclosure. This is our foundation, what God has said. Number two, and as we talked about, he focuses our attention from the very beginning on Jesus. This is a characteristic of the entire letter. It's completely focused on Jesus. And number three, the mention of angels in verse 4 connects the beginning with the rest of the opening two chapters where he delves even deeper into the topic of angels. So verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And we see here two eras of divine revelation from God is distinguished. We have the era of long ago, and we have the era of these last days. Now, what differentiates these two eras is the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, him becoming man, the ministry, the death, the burial, and his resurrection separates these two eras. And we can roughly equate these two eras as the equivalent of the Old Testament and the New Testaments in our Bible. An important thing to see first is we see harmony or similarity between these two eras because they are equally God's speech. We see in verse 1 that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son. So they're similar because God, they are both God's speech. And because they're God's speech, they are equally divine, authoritative, and inerrant or without error. Now, God is the originator of revelation. He is the source, he is the basis, and he is the subject. So both part of God's revelations form one unit because it is from one author. Now, this phrase, by the prophets, relates to God speaking to men long times ago, or a long time ago. There were many prophets that God used to deliver his message. But what the writer of Hebrews wants us to know is there's only one son. Now, God spoke through many different prophets at many different times over a period of about 15 centuries. And he spoke in many different ways throughout this time. As he did this, he communicates to us in a step-by-step revelation of himself 
the ultimate goal being to lead his people to Jesus, his son. Now, these first verse, this first verse tells us that God brought his word through the prophets at many times and at various ways. So the words times and ways have a very prominent place in the original Greek. They stand very first in the sentence. Among the forefathers who received, who received God's revelation were Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Many different men received this revelation. And he spoke to them in different ways. He spoke to Adam in the cool of the day. He spoke to Abraham in visions and in visits. He spoke to Jacob in a dream. He spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Now, through the prophets from Moses to Malachi, God's revelation was recorded down uh, and written in different genres. It was written as history or narrative. It was written as a psalm or a song, in proverbs, wise sayings, and prophecy. So the prophets were all those saints called by God and filled with God's Spirit to speak the word as a progressive revelation, meaning uh, the revelation builds on on previous revelation. It builds progressively, stage by stage, on top of each preceding revelation, just like a house is built on top of each other. And this, this revelation points to and shadows or prefigures the coming of Christ. This Old Testament prophet revelation prefigures the coming of Christ. I'd like you to turn just real quick to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Or at least note that. We want to read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, where Peter speaks to these prophets from long ago. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, you, and, and Peter's writing to the elect Christians dispersed throughout the area. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here we see that the Old Testament prophets had the spirit of Christ in them, and they were predicting the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. So we see this idea of harmony and unity of one author and of this Old Testament revelation being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the prophet did not bring his own message, his own formulation or of some kind of religious truth. But we see here that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he spoke the word of God which did not have its origin in the will of man, but came from God. Again, he predicted the sufferings and glories of Christ. The Old Testament prophets spoke by the Spirit of Christ about Christ. So we see the similarity. The, this revelation from long ago and these day, last days have one author and one focus. That's the Son. But now we want to get into the differences 
And the writer of Hebrews next turns to the contrast between the long ago and the last days revelations. Before we read the next verse, I want to look at John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. So we see here, and we'll talk about how the prophets were human, but the Son is divine. The prophets were human, but the Son is divine. So in John 3, 31 through 36, we have John the Baptist speaking here. And he has some very interesting things to say about the Old Testament prophets. He says in verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So John the Baptist here, it looks like to me he is representing all the Old Testament prophets or all the long-ago Revelation prophets. And he compares himself and his era to Jesus and his revelation. So we see from these words that there's a fullness and a finality about God's self-revelation in a son which cannot characterize the ministry of any prophet, no matter how great or obedient or how godly he was. The prophets were finite, so they had limitations on what they could receive and what they could declare. Christ is infinite and has no limitations. So as the revelation of the Old Testament progressed, it constantly pointed to the coming of this Messiah. And when he finally came, he brought the very word of God because he is the word of God. Therefore, Jesus brought the word in all its variety and all of its fullness and all of its richness. Now, God indeed spoke to our fathers of the faith in the past, but now his son speaks to us, making this the final and concluding revelation. F.F. Bruce, a, a New Testament theologian and author, says this, The story of divine revelation is a story of progression up to Christ, but there is no progression beyond him. There's no need for further revelation after Christ. In fact, the emphasis in verse 2 here in Hebrews chapter 1 is on the word son. So to be specific, there's only one son of God. All other sons are created as in angels or adopted as in believers. As God has spoken by his son, so the son has spoken by the apostles who inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote the books of the New Testament. This new revelation that God has given us through his son in these last days is a continuation of, a revelation, of the revelation given to the forefathers. God's revelation, now completed in his son, is one unit, a unified, coherent story in which the old is fulfilled in the new. Now next, the rest of verse 2, talking about his son, he says of the Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world or universe. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So now to express the excellence of God's son, the writer of Hebrews describes what God has done. Here we see that Jesus is the divinely appointed creator and upholder of all things. Now, this is a reference to the creation account in Genesis. So the New Testament is not silent about the creation account. Both Paul and the writer of Hebrews teaches that Jesus was active in the work of creation. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John confirms the same truth in John 1.3. Speaking of Jesus, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Son, as creator and sustainer of all things, the writer thinks it's important for us to see the majesty of Jesus, the Son, who was present at creation and is the sovereign Lord over all things. We also see in verse 2 that Jesus is the heir of everything, the entire universe. As the rightful heir, Jesus inherits everything. It all belongs to him. Verse 3, we see the phrases, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, these stress the Son's oneness with God. The phrase, the radiance of the glory of God, is telling us that Jesus just doesn't reflect God's glory, but is the very beam of God's divine light. He is the light. He said so in John eight twelve. He said, I am the light of the world. So he radiates the light of God's glory, God's perfection, and God's majesty. There is no darkness in him. Jesus is the exact imprint or the exact representation of God, like a seal or stamp. That's what these words mean. So in one sense, the Son is the alter ego of God, so to speak, in an exact way and to a complete degree. God himself stamped upon his Son the divine imprint of his being. Now, even so, as the imprint is same as the stamp that makes it, they both exist separately. So the Son, who bears the very stamp of God's nature, is not the Father, but he proceeds eternally from the Father. Even still, as Jesus himself told Philip, he who sees the Son has seen the Father. In summary, the Son is God. Now Jesus also, it says in this verse, upholds the universe by the word of his power, or he sustains all things by his powerful word. Now this, this word translated upholds or sustains literally means to carry something. So this is telling us that Jesus carries and cares for all things. And it has with it uh, the, uh, the thought of carrying something with a forward motion to its destined end. So he's carrying things along. But So think about this for a second. Think about the God we're hearing about here, okay? He speaks words, and these words create and sustain and carry 
and move forward the entirety of the cosmos as we know it. Now, this is not hyperbole or this is not exaggeration. This is the reality. Okay, no other motions are necessary from the Son. His spoken word is sufficient to carry, to create, and to carry the universe. It's amazing, the power of God's word. So next, he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As amazing as what the son did to create and carry by his word, he didn't stop there. The son did more than just create and uphold the universe. He's not a distant creator who just created and stepped back. Because of his love and mercy, the son wanted to deal with mankind's sin problem. So our problem, if you don't know, is that we're guilty as sinners of breaking God's law. And as a result, we stand convicted to be punished for eternity for our sins because we have offended an eternal God. So his job, the son's job, is to complete and yield his earthly life as a sacrifice on the cross for the removal of sins. This is almost, if it wasn't inspired by God, we would almost say this is a quite pithy statement. It's five words, and five words here, After making purifications for sins, the writer of Hebrews summarized what Jesus did on earth, right? This was Jesus' goal. This was his purpose. If he had a mission statement, it was he was making purification for sins. So what he had to do, what he covenanted to do before the foundation of the world, relates to the Old Testament sacrifices and priestly activities So the writer of Hebrews gets into this in a lot more detail later in the book. But this idea of purification speaks to an altar. It reminds us of the Old Testament altar, and it reminds us of the people of the Old Testament. It reminds us of a God who's offended and to a people who are defiled. Something dirty, there's something dirty, and the Son makes it clean. He purifies it. Now, the high priests of the Old Testament era needed animal sacrifices, right, to accomplish this. First, to cleanse himself because he was dirty, and then to cleanse the people. Now, Jesus was simultaneously, or at the same time, the priest and the sacrifice when he offered himself up on the cross for the purification of the sins of the people. So after the Son atoned for the sin to the satisfaction of the majesty on high or the majesty in heaven, or this is another term for God the Father, only after this work could could he be enthroned as ruler of all. Now the expression here, sat down at the right hand, we can't take that literally, but this is symbolic. Jesus is not inactive now. He is continually making intercession for his church, for his people. This idea of sitting at the right hand symbolizes a privilege granted to a very highly honored person. The son now has authority to rule his worldwide kingdom on earth and is enthroned above all spiritual powers in the heavenly places. The kingdom now belongs to him as the proper heir. And now he has, as Philippians 2 says, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth 
and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So now in verse 4, well, let's read verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So finally, for this morning, the author of Hebrews compares the sun with angels, those created beings that constantly surround the throne of God. At this time, the Jews, including uh, Jewish Christians, more than likely had a very high regard for angels, not unlike some in our time. But however important agents are, we will learn here that the sun exceeds them all. There is no other heavenly mediator but Jesus Christ. These of all creatures, though, are closest to God. After all, they serve as his messengers. They are busy in the work of providing man with God's revelation and being involved in the work of redeeming fallen man. But in a certain sense, or in a certain sense, the angels can be thought of as higher than man. We see in Psalm 8, 5, the psalmist writes, You have made him, being man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crown him with glory and honor. So even if angels are in a certain sense higher than man, they are in no way superior to the Son because he has inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs. This name and designation of Son has come to Jesus by inheritance because the Father has, has appointed him heir. The angels are created to be servants and are excluded from being heirs. They minister to those who will inherit salvation, but they themselves do not share in any of the inheritance. Now, angels may be called elsewhere in the Bible sons of God, mighty ones, or holy ones, but they remain created beings in contrast to the Son, who is their creator. So in these four verses we have looked at this morning, we have seen the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. The Son is the ultimate and greatest prophet, for in these last days God has spoken in him and through him. He is also the priest who has provided himself as a purification for sin. And he is the king who sustains the world by his powerful word and is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. So in conclusion this morning, I just want to ask, I want to ask a few questions and I want you to think about them. So do you listen to Jesus, the greatest and supreme prophet? Do you value and respect and obey the words of the Son? Have you accepted the work of the pre, of priest Jesus on your behalf? Have you, through faith in him and his priestly work on the cross, acknowledged your sin, acknowledged your defilement? Have you repented of your sin and received purification and cleansing for your sins? Have you bowed the knee to this powerful creator king of heaven and earth? Do you live and love as a citizen of the kingdom? Have you, like the Greeks of long ago, left the shadows of imperfection to embrace the bright light of reality? 
Have you, like the Jews of those days long ago, in these last days, have you found the one and only perfect sacrifice that will open the way to God? I hope and pray the answer to these questions is yes for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning in awe of the Son. We come in awe of Jesus, who is supreme over all, who is the heir of all things, and who by His Word created the world and the universe and sustains this very world, Father, minute by minute, second by second, at work, sustaining and creating new life, cleansing sins, purifying defiled people through faith in Him. Lord, I pray this morning that we would take these verses to heart. We would have a new view and a greater understanding of the preeminence of Christ, not only in our lives, but in the universe, Father. So we thank you for him. We thank you for his word. We thank you for the prophets that spoke long ago and that they spoke of Christ and that you have fulfilled their words, that you are bringing all things to fulfillment. You are answering all your promises through Jesus. May we worship Jesus truly. May we love him as the Son. Father, we love you, and we're very thankful for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.